1: Today's episode of the Serial Dynasty is sponsored in part by Audible. Audible is offering for Serial Dynasty listeners to download a free audiobook. To download your free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com slash Serial Dynasty. Funding for the Serial Dynasty is also provided in part by listeners like you through your generous donations. Hello everyone and welcome back to episode number 8 of the Serial Dynasty. First and foremost, I want to say happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. Hopefully all you dads today are able to kick back, relax, and enjoy your family today. Maybe they even give you a little quiet time to listen to the Serial Dynasty. On today's episode, we have an interview with Ms. Rabia Shadri. I Want to thank Robbie for being gracious enough to call into the show and spend about forty-five minutes with us today talking about the case and how Adnan's doing and the undisclosed project. Before we begin the interview, I just want to make a quick note to everybody: uh, if you're hoping to hear Robbie and I discuss the episode five addendum, we will not be discussing the addendum in this week's episode, and that was simply a matter of logistics. In order for our schedules to both line up, we actually recorded the interview on Monday morning before the addendum dropped. So we'll primarily be discussing kind of the future. We'll be discussing episode five and the previous episodes. And after the interview, I'll be reading a few listener emails and discussing the addendum. But for now, let's get the show started with Rabia Ashadri. Alright, we are here today with Robbie Ashadri from the Undisclosed Podcast and the SplitTheMoon.com blog. Welcome, Robbie. How are you today?
0: Good. I'm good. Thanks so much for having me.
1: No problem. I'm glad to have you on the show. Um, so I want, I wanted to get right into this. I know we've got a lot of content to cover. First thing I wanted to talk to you about is, is how's Adnan doing?
0: Um, he's doing well. He's, um, you know, I think much more upbeat than he has been in a long time, especially after the last couple of court rulings, um, you know, because these are such long shots, we were just hoping, uh, but there was, the chances are very slim, so he's uh, he's doing well, he's generally a fairly even keel guy, um, and he's in a good place, he's happy.
1: That's great, um, and is he, he's not able to listen to the podcast, I think I saw that on, on some of your Twitter feed, he's not able to listen to the podcast in prison?
0: Oh no! I mean, he look. He's in a supermax facility. It's um, they don't get internet and they don't uh have access to you know. They can't download stuff. They don't have any of that. I mean, the closest he could come was if somebody was able to send him the pod, any of the podcasts on um on a CD. And even there, there's a lot of limitations. Like a private person cannot send a CD. Only a company can. Blah blah blah. So. Um, suffice it to say, he, he has to work with transcripts and <laughs> not when he doesn't have the actual tape content.
1: Alright. So, is, is he looking at the transcripts from Undisclosed and seeing what you guys are uncovering?
0: I don't think anybody has sent him the transcripts from Undisclosed. But, um, you know, much of our content is based on the blogs that Susan and Colin already wrote and those were all have been sent to him, um, over the last five, six months.
1: So, at least he's a little bit in the loop there. Um, how often do you get to go see him? or talk to him. I don't know. Do you do you go visit him or is it phone conversations?
0: Yeah, I do. I mean, like it's been it's not very frequent because once he was moved, he used to be in a facility that was literally like half an hour away. Um it was right here and very close to his parents' house and that was um they had very convenient. They had like very um open hours for visitation and the rules for visitation were easy. Um now he's quite far off. Um it's a 3-hour drive. And when you – there have been times when we've gotten there and we couldn't see them because they were on lockdown or something, you know. So it's uh, – it, it takes, and, then, you know, so you're there and it's three hours back. So it's a full-day commitment. So I'm not able to see him and really even his family more than, like, once every three or four months. Um, but on the phone, we you know, he calls – I mean, we talk about every other week, sometimes every week. He has limited phone hours, and then in those phone hours, he has to, you know, talk to family, talk to attorneys, talk to, depending on what's going on that week, so, and I happen to miss his call all of the time. I miss his call all the time, because he calls through a phone exchange, and the phone exchange will show you that the call is coming from Tennessee, Texas, you have no idea, oh, yeah. and so I'll look, yeah, and I'll look at a number, and I'll be like, oh, I don't know who's calling, <laughs> and then. Once I get the missed call, then I'm like, oh crap, that was a bun. So, um, we, we play phone tag
1: too a lot. Um, another question I had for you, Rabia, was, um, in our last episode, we had a caller that was asking about things like in the West Memphis 3 case, the Alford plea, where, um, when a inmate is offered a, a retrial and that sometimes that they'll be offered to plead guilty to the crime for the exact amount of time served that they have served already. And so basically, they, if they plead guilty, they finally get to go home. And we were talking a little bit about the moral dilemma for someone like Adnan, you know, who's maintained his innocence, and and is, if that situation comes up, if they're you know willing to say they did something they didn't do so they can get out of prison, or whether they would want to fight at a new trial and risk being stuck back in prison, uh, and it's it's a tricky situation. So I guess the the question would be: Number one, is that a possible outcome for Adnan? And if that comes up, do you have any idea how you think he would react to that?
0: Yeah, I think, in fact, that it's not just a possible outcome. It's maybe the most likely outcome if the court continues to rule in our favor. So if things keep going our way, the eventuality will be that some court along the line will say, this guy deserves a new trial. And in that case, I cannot imagine the police going, I mean, uh, the prosecution deciding to take it to trial unless they have new compelling evidence that has not already been presented. And we already know what they have. I mean, like, we, we know what the case against a man was. It was Jay and cell phone stuff, which is, I think, all completely useless at this point. So I think the most likely outcome would be that the state would say, we're not going to retry this case because they have nothing. They have you know, there, there's just nothing there anymore. Um, and they would offer him a plea. Now, you know, this is, um, it's precisely this dilemma that led to the creation of this. Um, really odd legal construction called the Alford plea. So, in an Alford plea, you are pleading guilty while maintaining your innocence. And, you know, it's, to me, it's so ridiculous that the law needs something like this, right? Right. And, and, and to me, it's a way of covering the state back, right? Making, letting the state off the hook, because if this guy's pleading guilty, you don't have to reopen the case and reinvestigate. But, you know, but admitting. That this guy was actually innocent, you know, because when, when the state accepts an alpha plea, they know that guy's innocent. So, but at the same time, they've got their, they just cover their back. So I think it's, um, I think, I think alpha pleas are just kind of an embarrassment to the system. in a case like that, the state should say, we drop charges and we admit he's innocent, but it is what it is. And if they offered him an alpha plea, um, he could take it while maintaining his innocence. And I don't see, you know, that would be the best thing for him to do. I would absolutely. Encourage him to do it because, as far as I'm concerned, um, he spent 16 years away from his family and he doesn't, he shouldn't have spent a single day away. So, I don't, I wouldn't tell him to, to take another two years and do a trial. You know, I, I just wouldn't, even, even if the outcome likely would be that he would win it. And I think it would be likely to win it,
1: yeah. Yeah, and I think most people would, I mean, me personally, it's, You know, if that was my brother sitting in sitting in prison, I would be, you know, just take the take the plea and come home. So I I think everybody everybody understands that. It's just it's frustrating, like you said, it's it's kind of embarrassment. Like at some point, you want some justice for the state to say we screwed up, he's innocent, and and probably not going to happen that way.
0: Yeah, and justice for Hay. I mean, that that's even the bigger and like you know, troublesome part of this is that. If it's an alpha plea, the case is, I mean, the case is done. You know, the, the state does not then go look for who actually did it. They just close it and move on. And I think that is uh, tragic for the, her family and for her. It's just wrong.
1: It is. It's terrible. Now, is there—is there a possibility, and I, I, I've been doing a lot of reading on this, and I found some cases that appear to have worked that way and talked to some detectives. Is there a possibility of getting the police department to reopen their investigation um, you know, independent of what's going on in the court, for them to reopen a cold case like this and and try to solve it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's totally up to them. I mean, they would not do it as long as Adnan is in prison and he is, you know, I mean, for them, they've reached finality, right? They, they have the right guy in jail. That's what they think. If he were to be given an alpha plea, it's up to the police if they wanted to. And maybe with enough pressure, maybe if her community... Uh, reemerged and said, no, we, you, you're not letting this go like this. And they, they can. They can do that anytime. They can do that anytime.
1: Can they, did you say they cannot do it when he's still in prison, or you just don't think they would while he's still in prison? I no,
0: mean, they would not. No, they absolutely wouldn't. I mean, they couldn't politically think about it. Like, we've got, we got a guy who was a lifer, and we've convicted him, but we're going to reopen the investigation. Like, they, it just would not happen, right? Um, so, I, I, I don't see that happening, but I think if he was given an Alford plea, um, then they
1: could reopen it if they wanted to, but they don't have to. Right. Yeah. I it, it it I, can't decide right now if the political climate in Baltimore is conducive for them to want to do something like that or not, you know, with, um, is it Marilyn Mosby, I think is the, the DA, um, yeah. you know, that after the, uh, the last events with Freddie Gray's death in Baltimore, you know, really, really pushing, you know, she charged those, the police officers with murder and she was pushing that they're going to, Fix this, clean up this department, right the past wrongs. It was. It would be amazing to get her to push and, and to, especially if there's an Alfred plea, to reopen this investigation to try to correct it. Or if they just, this is something that they would just not, to, you know, brush under the rug and be done with because they don't want any more bad press.
0: Look, I mean, I think you know, and and, and the case is in her office, right? I mean, it's, an, it's it's assigned to one of the attorneys in her office, um, and I think it would be tremendous for her. To say that justice needs to be done in this case, and we need to revisit it, because look, you know, that was—it was a whole different crew of people. You know, the the state attorney's office looked differently than it. it was different people. Um, not all different people, but you know, mostly different people. And uh, those police are not with Baltimore City Police anymore. And you know, they—they one of them at least has been implicated in some other um, cases as well as having um, mishandled the case. So I think, you know, but I, but I, I do think it's, you're right in that, I mean, there's, with Freddie Gray and then so much other systematic, um, problems with the, with the Baltimore City Police and other things. I don't know if they would reach that far back into the past to address this, but given the public scrutiny, it would, it would be good. It would be good for them to do that.
1: Yeah, I think if there's, you know, it probably still is unlikely, but if there was ever a case that they would consider it might be the one that has, you know, 10 million people behind it beating at their doors. Right. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now,
0: you want to get mixed up in the family business.
1: Introducing
0: The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com.
1: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Um, Now, speaking of Ad- Adnan in prison, you know, there's – as your podcast as Undisclosed has come out and uncovered so much more information – uh, that one of the names that has really started rolling around out there now is this Roy Davis that, uh, was convicted of murdering Jada Lambert. And we've seen that he's in the same prison as Adnan. Um, and do you know if, if the two of them have ever met or if they know each other?
0: Yeah, actually they do. Um, they do know each other. And I have brought him up with Adnan and, uh, they, I don't know how long they've known each other, but, um, they are, Let's say frequently in contact. They know each other very well.
1: Okay, and
0: um, which, is, which is awkward.
1: <laughs> I was just gonna say that. It, I, I was. It's almost. I was just thinking in my mind. This is. That's got to be awkward. And I don't really. I'm. I'm sure you can't go much further into detail other than that.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, what I understand is that. Look, you know, you obviously in prisons and especially in supermarkets, you have people who, who are there. Um, because they did some really serious stuff. And, uh, what I understand of Roy Davis is that he admits that he has some serious problems in his past. So, um now, does that mean, you know, is he still, con- could he be connected to space? I think it's certainly a possibility. I also think Ronald Lee Moore is a, um, is a candidate for, um being involved in this crime. He was a very dangerous person who happened to have been, um, released by mistake, right? like 10 days or 12 days before this happened.
1: I've, I've heard that a few times that he was released by mistake. How did how did that come about? How was he released?
0: Uh, honestly, I don't know exactly the, the details of it. Because, you know, if you look at the news coverage of any of these stories, like even Adnan's case from back in the day, it's very it's very cursory coverage. There's very little information. It's just like, you know, the crime beats don't go into real detail. So uh, I don't have a lot of information on how it happened. Um, but it did happen. We're pretty clear on that.
1: Right. Um, and along the lines of. And if
0: you, I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead. You know, if you. I'm sorry, I'm going to say, you know, in a case like that, if you imagine that there was a mistake on the part of the state that they released this guy and somebody, you know, others got killed because of that, um, that's, that's a major, major, not just embarrassment, but it's travesty, right?
1: I'm sure the last thing that the state would want is to find out that. Ronald Lee Moore was the murderer because he was out because of their mistake. Right.
0: But yeah, those are two possibilities and there's there's other possibilities too.
1: To be honest, so. Before we get off the uh the topic of Roy Davis, um I wanted to ask I've had a lot of uh listener emails and some questions on the on the last episode. Uh do you know much about the similarities between uh Roy Davis's or excuse me, between Jada Lambert's murder and Hayes' murder? You know, I I've, I've had brought up that um, both of them lived in the same basic neighborhood as Roy Davis, that both of their final destinations the day they were abducted went near where his house was at. Um, they were both found in a wooded area near a stream. They were both found, um, fully clothed and they both had some, uh, well, let me, let me rephrase that. Jada Lambert, in that case, I had read that she had, um, some personal items, some money missing from her. Um, and then there was—I had some questions as far as the episode five of Undisclosed. Uh, there were some questions about there was a purse and a wallet and whether it was removed or whether it wasn't. And the purse was found. Was 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 Hayes' wallet uh, ever found?
0: Um, not to my knowledge, it did not appear in any of the evidence list inventory. So I don't think her wallet was found. I don't think. I mean, if it was found, it you know it it, it should have appeared. But you know, at this point, I will also say that I don't fully trust the documents of the investigation. Oh, sure. Um, there could be something that was just not listed, or you know, uh, honestly, I I just feel like something that's sketchy. But from what we know, her wallet was not found, and her keys were not found.
1: Okay, so no wallet, no keys. So that that there's a, there seems to be a lot of similarities there, and you know, and and of course, we looking you know hindsight now, you know, there's people all over. You know, all over the internet, saying how did the police miss this? But, um, but at at the time when Hay was murdered, Roy Davis was not even a suspect in Jada Lambert's murder at that point, right?
0: That's that's right. Yeah. So the police did not know at that time, um, that this was somebody to even look at. I mean, Jada Lambert, you know, murder was was had not. It was like an open investigation. The police had no idea who did it. It. I think it was like seven months prior to when Hay was killed. Uh, he wasn't, um, I think it was a number of years went by before they were able to do a DNA match. Um, yeah, I
1: think
0: and it was. He, was, so he was out and about.
1: Yeah, well, now he was out and about because he was picked up on, a, was it like an armed robbery or a burglary charge or something? And then Right, what?
0: so when they did, yeah, when they did the DNA match, um, he was serving time for armed robbery, but I mean when Hay was killed, he was out and about. He was not, you know, so he did have, he wasn't, you know, in prison at the time, and, you know, we know that his potential route went past, you know, where he lived, and I I mean, there's very much a possibility. Yeah, why not?
1: Okay, and lead us into talking a little bit about um, episode five last week, and I mentioned in the opening of this uh, podcast before I got you on the phone that, you know, we won't be discussing. Uh, the episode five addendum this week because of, with our schedules, we're recording actually before episode five addendum drops. So looking back onto last week's episode five, you know, there was a lot of, lot of buzz about the, um, the pictures of Hayes car and the investigation of her car. And I just had a couple of questions about, you know, with me looking at those photos, to me, it seemed very obvious that that car had not been sitting there for six weeks for a number of reasons. Um, You know, there was obviously the green grass and the wheel wells, but I just noticed the cleanliness of it. You know, I just this morning before I came out to the studio to record, you know, my truck sat outside overnight last night and it was raining and it looks filthy. The windshield looks filthy, everything. So I, there's just no way to me that that car had been sitting there for uh, for six weeks. But there was there was a lot of questions about the. The green grass and whether the, you know, the car hadn't been parked there because the grass was still green under it. And more importantly, the green grass and the wheel wells that certainly seemed to imply that the vehicle had been moved recently. Um, but I just had a little, little question about, it cause, you know, I'm from Michigan. So the weather here is obviously a little bit different than out in Baltimore. Um, uh, but it, it, is that pretty typical for things to be greened up that early still in February that way, just in general?
0: I mean, it's not typical, but then we sometimes have atypical weather patterns. Right? I mean, if you have. A warm stretch for even you know a week, you might get some greening going. Um, so I, I, it's hard to say what's typical, not typical, but you know it is what it is. I mean that picture was taken on February twenty eighth, and um, that is what the grass looks like. It does happen. I mean so even you know we experience atypical weather patterns, um, so it does happen. But and, and remember when the day uh, hay disappeared. It was the middle of January and it was like in the 50s, right?
1: Sure, right. So,
0: yeah, so this, it's not necessary that, uh, that just because it's February that the grass would be dead the whole time. Um, you know, and I, I, I read some or I've heard some theories about, well, you know, it, it would it probably had rained and like very recently, which would explain why number one, the grass was sticking in the wheel well and also why the car is clean. Um, but I know and most people know that if you have a car that's sitting through any, like, it doesn't matter if it's the winter. But the winter particularly does a number on vehicles. But even if it's the summer, but it doesn't matter. When your car has some build up on it, even the rain, like, you know, will not clean it off. And um, I, my car, you know, I've been needing a car wash for a while. I took it to the car wash the other day, and it still is not quite clean to right. <laughs> me. Be- Rain is not enough to clean off filth that's been, like, really sticking to your car.
1: Sure. And, you know, it's it's amazing the car sat there for six weeks and never got pooped on by a bird.
0: There is no way the car was there. Now, you know, in my um blog, uh, recently I had visited the area, 300 Edgewood, and um, and it looks like it did back in uh, 99, 2000. And the, the way that entire neighborhood is set up, and you'll find this in different blocks, is that... You have rows of homes or, like, town homes or row homes, and there'll be four. And in the middle of four rows uh, will be, like, you know, a square will be this lot, a green lot, and uh, some grass, basically. And in some instances, you'll find cars are parked there. People will use it for different things, but it's very much kind of like everybody's backyard. And people have set around, you know, all four, four perim- the whole perimeter, they've got their drills set up, they have cars uh, parked back there. they have chairs set up. And these are neighborhoods that are, you know, tight in the neighborhoods. There's just no way that cars sat there for six weeks and nobody saw it and noticed it. Um, another thing that you might have noticed in that picture, I don't, I don't know if you're just caught on it, was that the car next to Hayes had a club on the wheel, right?
1: No, and I was, didn't notice because,
0: that. Yeah, go back and take a look at the picture. There's a club on the wheel. And, you know, that's pretty common in urban areas or high-crime areas where, um, you know, you want to make sure your vehicle's safe, so people will put a club on it, so it can't be hotwired. And that should tell you that, you know, this is an area where, um that is a possibility, and I'm, I know that's an area of heavy police. I refuse to believe that a car was there. This is not, not, the woods, and it's not abandoned in a place that there aren't people. This is a very active place with an active police presence, Um... And there's no way that in a community, you know, that's that close knit, and you know, everybody sharing a background, essentially, is not going to notice this car there.
1: Do you have um, your own personal working theory on, on, as far as how you think it did get there?
0: Yeah, my, I do. I mean, my theory is that um, if somebody had a car, and they had it in a had a in a closed area. Uh I think this car was kept in the garage somewhere for a number of weeks, and then it was moved here. And so, you know, I don't think this car was kept out in the open anywhere. So then you have to look at homes that I would say a home that has a garage
1: space. Okay, yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. You know, one of the uh, and and I I I want to blame it on my listeners, but it's really my own kind of tinfoil hat theory on this. Um, and and it's not really a theory; it's just one of the things. And trying to, you know, I look at things like that and I try to think of any possibility of it being there. Uh, one thing that was noted in undisclosed in your guys' episode five was that the the collar was taken off the ignition, which is typically what someone would do if they were gonna hot wire a car. Um and it was mentioned that you know that that most likely or maybe the killer. And you know, my thought was that the you know the killer would have had the keys. They were there with um they were there with hay. Uh, it seemed more likely to me that that was someone later moving the car that didn't have the key Now that could have been the killer if if like you said the car was kept in someone's garage and they misplaced the key um but I think if you know anyone that would want to go move that car, be it you know the the perpetrator, be it the police, be it whoever you know probably would have needed to hotwire the car to move it and what I was wondering is, do you know the how many days passed between um when the car was found, which I know is um uh, February 28th, and when it was turned over to uh Heyman's family?
0: Yeah, the uh, car was turned over to a family, and it went to her uncle's garage um, on May 7th, 1999. So, I'm sorry, not next season. Uh, it's March,
1: March, March 7th. 7th. <laughs> right. So, yeah,
0: so we're talking about uh, a little around a week, around a week later.
1: Okay, about, about seven days. Because that was one of the, you know, when I was asking about the grass and things like that, one thing that I just... I wonder about, in and in, in any of you listeners out there, I wouldn't put any weight in this. It's just something I was wondering about was, you know, what if the police took the car, they processed it, you know, from possibly another location and then took it back out to take photos, you know, whether they didn't have the information they needed from the original photos or anything, and that would explain, you know, another seven days for the grass to green up, the appearance that it had literally just been moved with the green grass on the wheel wells, it was clean, things like that. Um. So that that's just something that I was, and again, I, I re- realize is a speculative, uh, uh, tinfoil hat theory, but um, that-
0: well, I would say that if you go back and if you look at, and and there are there is video footage of um news coverage of the times that they disappeared and then when she was found, and people are being interviewed, including her coach was interviewed and other people on her team were interviewed after her body was found, and you will see, you know, and this is this is again, you know, like the winter. You'll see that there are plenty of green, grassy areas in, in, you know, in the, foot, in the footage. Sure. So, I guess it's not that unusual, you know, but for the police to have taken it and then moved, I, I just don't think that may, I, I, I like, there's just no evidence to show that. Like, right. I, it seems, yeah, from all the reports, it seems like they took pictures to there, they moved it, and then they turned it over and that was it. Um, yeah. They didn't do a lot of processing. They didn't do, other than literally taking the pictures, they did, like, no processing on the scene at all. I mean, you know, the the idea that, and the whole thing about, you know, the killer would have had keys, maybe, but maybe, you know, shes can also get lost. I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, you know, it just, it leaves you baffled because you're like, what the hell happened here, right? Why was, the car was, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was hot-wired, um, but I, what does that mean? Does that mean that, like, Maybe if there was a struggle, the keys got lost. Maybe I, you know, I remember reading when I was much younger um, about and, and well, things have changed. But when I was much younger and I first started driving, like sa- like safety measures, and I remember some t- one time um, reading that if somebody's trying to like steal your car, you should throw the keys really far away or something, yeah. <laughs> and then that will distract the person so they look for the keys and you can make a getaway. And, um, you know, I don't know. I just, I have all these, like, I don't know what, what it means that the keys are gone, but, but whoever put the keys away and got rid of the keys, you know, had to then hot water the car. But it certainly means that it has to be somebody who knows how to hot water the car.
1: Right. And, you know, I, you know, I do this all the time too. And that's kind of the, you know, the nature of the beast as far as kind of being an investigator, kind of looking at the little bit of evidence we have and trying to, Think of a theory that might fit. And it's funny you said about throwing the keys. Cause one of the things I thought was, okay, if this was a confrontation and argument and hey, was murdered to stop her from going to tell on somebody for doing something, you know, I, I envision, you know, her having this argument with this, with this person and well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to the police or I'm going to go tell, you know, go tell Stephanie or whatever the case is, whatever she was witnessing, the person grabbing her yeah. keys and throwing them into the woods and you're not going anywhere, you know, you know yeah. leading up to the argument
0: yeah I can see that happening. Um, although you know she disappeared I mean, like she, her disappearance was reported very quickly, and the police you know, although maybe they didn't start looking for her car in earnest very quickly. Um, i i I don't know i I think it's entirely possible that she was somewhere wherever she was killed, I think was in somebody's residence. um, I don't think she was killed in her car. I think the car must have been there, and then if the key somehow appeared that the brother in could have pushed the car into the garage. But that's not hard, you know. Put it in neutral and just give it a push. Sure. Um, and then just dealt with it. I just, but you know, there's just so many things that are hard to figure out. I mean, if you, even if you take the, uh you I know, mean, we talked about this in an earlier episode, um, with the medical evidence that you know hey was probably not buried for about 10 hours, let's say, after he was killed. Um, what I understand is that means she was in rigor like her body would have been full rigor at that point that's very hard to move a body that's in that you know what I mean like right. in that condition so stiff. and apparently she would have been you know, on her like face so she was straightened out so however she's being moved has to be in a, a vehicle that can accommodate that and then moving a body like that is hard I don't know I don't know
1: what happened here, yeah, and it really is. I've thought about that too, you know, with my line of work, I've had the unfortunate circumstances of of having to deal with um you know dead bodies that had been in rigor for that period of time, and it is it's hard you know even you know for us running medical calls or you know whatever the whatever the case may be, even just getting somebody you know you know put into a body bag can be difficult in that state so i I thought about that too in that time, and it had to be very difficult and like you said. Uh, in a vehicle or something, like, like a, I was thinking, like a van or a truck, somewhere where you could lay her out like that yeah. to to move her.
0: Well, the, the truth is, I actually don't think she was even very ten out. I think it was longer. I think it was after the rigorous path. And the reason I say that is because, um she if she had been in full rigor, and they that means the body's stiff, you can't do, really do anything. You have to just leave it as it is, right? Then I think she would have been left face down in the same position, or face up, whatever. But she would have found pretty flat. She was found kind of on his side, and, you know, her face was turned one way in her body. So I feel like it had to have been a time period where, like, more than 10 hours went by, and the rigor actually passed, and then her body was moved. Because otherwise, I don't see how they could have then repositioned her in a way that was not consistent with the rigor.
1: Right.
0: Um, I don't know how long it takes for a rigor to pass, but I, I feel like... It's a longer frame that we're looking at. I think it's
1: beyond ten hours. Yeah, and I I don't know either. I know there's times where it starts to go away, and and you can you can break the rigor, but it's 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 literally that you know. And I don't want to get morbid and talk you know too much about that, but I mean you can you can, but it's like you said, it's not it's not easy. It is it is difficult to bend and move. So I thought too, why if she was in full rigor and she was laid flat. Why go through the trouble of breaking rigor to move her into that position to bury Nobody her? Would do that. Would, or yeah, just, they
0: would leave her and she'd cover her
1: up. Yeah. Yeah. Dig a little bit bigger hole, uh, the other way, unless it was, to, unless that was to get her into a car. I mean, I don't know. It's, 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 it's not my field of expertise. So I shouldn't even be talking about it, but yeah, I don't, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Um, one thing, and I know I've, I've had you on the line for a while here. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about, uh, or, or talk a little bit about the, the group dynamic with undisclosed, you know, when I had, um, you know, I've had Susan and, and Colin on the show before. And, and in speaking with Colin, I guess I, I had, and I think a lot of listeners do too, that this mindset that the undisclosed team is the three of you sitting in a dark room somewhere, constantly researching all this stuff and putting the show together. <laughs> and, and, you know, and Colin had said, well, you know, I, cause I, I asked a stupid question kind of, the, you know, like, you know, what do you guys think about this? And, uh, you know, Colin said, well, there's really not a, a group think. We're all, uh, you know, researching things independently and, and then put yeah. them together, which I think is awesome. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how that process goes?
0: Yeah. I mean, we really are. We mostly are just kind of doing our own thing. And, you know, every so often, if we need to kind of like wrap our brains around something, might like shoot each other an email about what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Or, um, and I'll give you an example. You know, I, uh and this is in a video in my blog, you know, I revisited the burial site not long ago uh, and I took, and I wanted to take video footage of walking in and showing exactly where the log you know, was, and on the way because people keep identifying the wrong log which is much closer to the street and it's a straight shot back from the street, you can see it that's not the right log, the right log is quite far off to the left, it's much it's almost impossible to see from the street so, okay. as I were, walk, were walking back there, I, um, we found a brandy bottle. And, you know, it could mean nothing.
1: <laughs> Whoa. But,
0: I, I had been there a couple of months before with our photographer for Undisclosed, reasons, Marquez. And it wasn't there then. Um, there was really, cause, you know, we were kind of walking, like, you know, we were looking to see. It's not an area where there's a lot of debris. People think this is, this is not, it's a very, it's a pretty clean area. It's not very some debris, but very little. But, so this was, was kind of stuck out. It's an empty, almost empty brandy bottle. And it could mean nothing, but it also could mean, you know, sometimes it happens that, especially because there's a lot of talk about the case, it could be, you know what, it could be like a, Like there are people who are touring the site, like tourists, which is kind of, you know, really disturbing. Right. It could be something like that, went back there and drunk some. It could be, it could be somebody who related to the case who went back there. It could be the park revisiting. Or it could be nothing. And, um, you know, so I was like, okay, I I grabbed the bottle and I figured, you know what, we can get this tested in a private lab. Uh, and then I shot Susan and Colin and they went with me. I shot them an email saying, listen, um, do you have any idea how we could get this, if we got it tested, you know, or how we could get it compared to the, the of database. And so, yeah, know, so that that thing happens where we reached out to one another to touch base and, and see, you know, what we think. But, We mostly work on our own. We do, um, I mean, we kind of always agree on where the episode is going to go, what should be included, Um, and, you know, on content, definitely, I always let Colin and Susan take the lead uh, because much of the content is really theirs, and this is the truth. Um, The point of undisclosed was to bring their blogging and investigation to a big audience. And so, you know, I let them take the lead on what they think is important. And believe me, especially with a brain like Susan, there are times when she will be like, Okay, I look at this and this is really important and I don't get it. I'm like, I don't know why it's important. Right. And she has to if I have to explain to me like a child. This is why this is significant, Rabia. So um they they are the brains behind the production and um I facilitate to the best that I can.
1: Yeah, it's just a really, really I mean I don't I don't even want to say a neat idea but it the way that you guys are doing it is just incredible and and that you have you know three people that have all this information and this uh abilities to investigate this stuff independently the, the fact that you guys do this independently and of course you like you said you talk on things but um the fact that you're doing it independently just puts so much more validity to what you're doing to me you know that you're not you're you're not having those conversations about you know because I've heard on the show there's a couple times where you know you might disagree with Susan's theory or Susan and Colin don't disagree don't agree on something and I think that's great that's that shows that you guys are both are both all three of you are are really trying to get to the bottom of this in your own way and then, and then combining those efforts into the podcast. And it's just, it's.
0: Oh, and I'll tell you, I mean, 99% of the time, we don't know what the others are really working on. And when I, I will read one of Colin's new blogs and be like, Oh my gosh, I didn't know this. Um,
1: Yeah. Thanks for the heads up.
0: (laughs) Yeah. At any given time, uh, we're all working on things that others don't know about and not by, not on purpose. It's not that we want to exclude them, but just because, you know, everybody's got jobs as well and families. And so, you know, we're. We just kind of touch base when we need to on that. And uh, otherwise, um, yeah, we work very independently.
1: Yeah, and that's that's fantastic. And you guys are doing just, uh, I, I respect the hell out of you guys for everything you're doing there. You're doing an amazing job and an amazing service to Adnan. And I think hopefully for the future of the legal system, which leads me to, I, I've got an email if you got a couple minutes, Robbie, I want to read for you. this is an email I got uh, on Saturday from one of my listeners, Matt Goody. Uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, he says, Hi, Bob. Great podcast. I obviously hope the serial podcast and spinoffs help Free Adnan and Find Hayes Killer. However, I think one of the underlying benefits of these podcasts is the accountability it will hold police and prosecutors to going forward. I can picture a detective's first day on the job and their supervisor saying, Rule number one, do your job as if a hit podcast will expose all of your actions throughout this entire investigation <laughs> down the road. Same can be said for rookie prosecutor. Hopefully this will keep future Adnans out of jail and help find the truth in Heyman Lee's murder and their families. Thanks, MJ.
0: Yeah, look, you know, I, I the, one of the greatest frustrations of um misconduct in the criminal justice system, whether it's like police or prosecutors, is that there is very low accountability. I mean, for God's sake, we have video footage of cops killing unarmed people, and we cannot get accountability, right? So it's very, very difficult to um, to prosecute somebody, prosecute uh, a prosecutor, and and or a police in these instances. Um, there are immunities that are different depending, depending depending on the state. Every state has kind of its own, you know, set of case law and precedents. Um, but I I have really only heard of one prosecutor ever who served a little bit of time in prison for what he did, and that was like ten days, which is nothing. It's a stop on the wrist. So you know, you would hope that in these cases, um, you know, as public servants, as officers of the court, as officers of justice, that it doesn't take a podcast and millions of eyes for people to do their job right. But it, they, you know, the weight of their responsibility is that they have to make sure that the victim, in times, um, gets justice and that's done when the right person is put away. And so the idea there that there's such a thing as bad evidence could not even exist in our system. All evidence could be good evidence all at least all facts are the facts, and um you know I, I so I'm really you know i'm not that I'm not that uh, positive thinking that this will hold people accountable they can They can just get away with a lot because there's no accountability so and I think the worst that could happen in some of these cases is you know a prosecutor who are attorneys might fit, might lose a law license, which um, I think should happen, uh, and that's usually through the Bar Ethics Council, and um, you know, complaints have to be filed and they have an investigation and stuff. So, that's usually the most the most you can, the most accountability you can get, and it's highly, um, it's not sufficient, it's not enough.
1: Yeah, it's frustrating. Um, I had a listener um, on my last episode, the the call-in episode that was talking about the immunity for prosecutors and that's the first I had heard of that and it was it's frustrating to know that, you know, prosecutors that do things like this, and you know, namely in this case, Kevin Urick, you know, that that very well when this is all said and done with, no matter what is shown that he did or what what misconduct he committed, that he just may face no consequence for it.
0: Yeah, I mean I I think it's highly unlikely that he would get um I don't think criminal charges ever happening and I although, you know, anything's possible but I, I it just doesn't happen. Um and they are usually protected from liabilities and from, from civil suits. So there's that. Uh in any case if there's like an Alford plea also people who take an Alford plea are prevented from then suing um officers of state. So that's, you know, another barrier to that. But again, um I really think in an instance like this and I think it'll be further fleshed out when we hear Asia's testimony. Um and we have um And on the record that, you know, he literally prevented a witness from coming. I mean, that's, that's a violation of like, you know, law. And, and I think he should lose his law license over that.
1: Well, hopefully there is eventually some consequences for him. Um, and then I have, uh, one last, one last thing for me. I have a tweet that I got this morning from a Victoria Behun. Her Twitter handle is at faintfootprints. Uh, and she just tweeted real quick this morning. Was Adnan ever submitted to a polygraph test? Jay should also take one. So what, did Adnan ever take a polygraph test, or was he ever asked to?
0: No, he was never asked to. Uh, the police only gave one, or gave two of them to um, Mr. S. They gave him two polygraphs. They did not polygraph. the day. They Jay didn't ask for it. And, uh, you know, you know, not ask for it, then certainly, I mean, it's not them that the counsel themselves will offer on their own. It's usually part of an investigation if it happens at all from other people's end. But they didn't. And I, I found that really the Senate had a lot of people that they found the body and reported it but not a gay and not a non. And I think to me the only reason they wouldn't is because it could have produced bad evidence and they didn't want that.
1: Right. And that's what I was so thinking. I, it,
0: I'm, not, you know, I'm sorry?
1: I said that's what I was thinking. It seems to you know fit the the entire profile of how this case went that they didn't want to give Adnan or Jay a polygraph test because it probably would hurt it. From what we know now, I think it absolutely would have hurt their case, so they just didn't do it.
0: Yeah, that's what I think, happened. So he, um, he was never administered a polygraph about this. I think, and I, I, you know, I actually need to confirm this, but I have a vague recollection of, um, maybe 2008, 2009, that Anon, Took a polygraph um, on the issue of whether or not Gutierrez had um, talked to him, about whether or not he had asked Gutierrez to look into a plea, and that was related to the ineffective assistance claim that's pending right now. And for some reason, I I had this really vague recollection that he was going to take it or he did take it, but it actually never appears in the record. So, but other than that, no, never, he he didn't, he was never asked to take one.
1: All right. Well, Robbie, thank you for taking the time to interview with me today. And I'm sure all the listeners are going to be enthralled to hear you speak for almost an hour on the show. Did you have anything else you needed to add before we take off?
0: Um, No, I just, uh, you know, I thank the listeners. I mean, you know, everything that they're doing, because I know that people who are paying attention to Undisclosed and to your podcast are not... They're not necessarily the serial crowd, which is it's not necessarily the people who are just there for entertainment. They really want to find out what happened, and they're very committed to the facts of the case and to investigating. And, um, you know, I encourage them to continue to do so, to send us information you might find, to send us your series, um, to just be with us um, through this journey. And there's a lot more that we still have to discuss on the close. And thank you, Bob. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Oh, thank you for coming on, and I'm looking forward to hearing the addendum tonight. And uh, maybe as as time goes on, maybe we'll catch up again in a little while.
0: Sounds good. Appreciate
1: it. Yep. Thanks, Robbie. You have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woo a hand clapper, a high-fiver? I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Spend your passion into a business with Shopify and break
0: sales records
1: All right, I hope you all enjoyed the interview with Rabia. I know I always enjoy hearing her on the Undisclosed podcast and various interviews, so it was really a thrill for me to be able to speak with her on the podcast, and I hope you all enjoyed the interview. Now I'd like to take a few minutes before we close the show to discuss the Episode 5 addendum of the Undisclosed podcast that dropped last Monday. The big bombshell in the Undisclosed podcast Episode 5 addendum was a discovery made by Susan Simpson that it's very possible that Hayes' car might have been in another location other than the site that Jay led the police to. She noted a report sent to Officer O'Shea, who made a request on February 24, 1999, asking for records of any police officers that may have run the plates on Hayes' car over the past several weeks. The purpose behind this was to find out if the car had been spotted anywhere. Remember, on February twenty-fourth, they had not located Hayes' car yet. So, of course, any hits on the NCIC system, where an officer might have run Hayes' plates, would give the police department a better idea of where Hay's car had been over the past several weeks. There are several hits on that report, a few on January 14th, the day after Hay went missing, one on the 15th, and most notably two on February 4th that came from a neighboring county. Now Susan didn't quite come to this conclusion, but alluded to the fact that it's possible that this was a Baltimore County police officer running Hay's plate, which would of course lead us to believe that Hayes' car was actually not in Baltimore City where the car was found, but on February 4th that it might have actually been in Baltimore County. Now this discovery could most certainly be what we would refer to as a bombshell if it does indeed indicate that a police officer ran Hayes' plates, meaning that they saw Hayes' car in Baltimore County. That would track right along with the theory that the police had moved Hayes' car or that someone had moved Hayes' car very recently prior to the discovery of it on February 28th, as discussed in Undisclosed episode number 5. You'll remember from episode 5, and also if you've been on the Serial Dynasty Twitter feed or the Undisclosed Twitter feed or on the Undisclosed website, if you've seen the photos of the car, the car looks immaculate, very clean, the grass under it is very green, and there's green grass all in the wheel wells of the car which would most definitely indicate that the car had recently been moved to that location. So I've been doing quite a bit of research on the technicalities of these NCIC searches. What I want to do now is just take a few minutes to kind of break down what the system is based on my understanding and just kind of lay a basic, simple groundwork of what the discovery said, at least to my understanding. First of all, the NCIC. I had several emails and tweets and questions asking what the NCIC even is. NCIC stands for National Crime Information Center. What it is is a national database. It's a place where police can input information on crimes and circumstances that would be notable over state lines. And therein also provides a place for the police to search for things like a license plate number, searching for outstanding warrants, things like that. Now, I've done quite a bit of research in the last couple of days between reading and speaking with police officers and dispatchers, so I have a little bit of a better understanding than I did when I first heard the episode. However, I want to make clear that the information I have is based on how things are done in Michigan. Now, NCIC is a national organization, but procedures can vary from state to state. Most states have their own crime information system that is limited to only things that have happened in their state. In the state of Michigan, we have what's called LEAN. L-E-I-N. LEAN stands for Law Enforcement Information Network. From what I understand, most states have something similar to this. The way it works in Michigan, if someone inputs information into LEAN, such as a stolen car or a warrant, the system then reads whether it's something that needs to be sent out beyond just that state and will automatically upload that into the NCIC. So there's several ways that a police officer can access this information. One of them, and the most common, which is kind of what we're wondering about in the case of these February 4th inquiries, is if a police officer is behind a vehicle that they're about to pull over, before they pull them over, typically they will run what we in Michigan refer to as a rolling reg. If you ever listen to a scanner, you'll hear police officers say, dispatch rolling reg. They'll come back. They'll give them the plate number. And what they're doing is dispatch is looking in the lien system, which also links to the NCIC, to see if there might be someone in the car with a warrant, possibly someone with a record, if the car has been stolen, etc. It's mostly a way for the police officers to protect themselves before they actually stop the car and get out and approach it. Now, police officers will also use the system if they find, say, an abandoned or a suspicious car. If they see a car that's possibly been parked in the same place or someone's complained about it, they may stop to investigate. They may call up to dispatch and ask them to run the plates through lean. Now, if things have been done correctly, right when the missing persons report was initiated back on January 13th, Detective O'Shea, who I believe was in charge of the investigation at that point, should have input in the missing persons report the license plate into lean, as well as into the NCIC. Now, that license plate input into the NCIC is most likely, based on my limited understanding of it, something that would have had to have been put in manually because at that point it was a missing persons investigation that was less than 24 hours old. The local system algorithm may not have felt that was something that needed to be also uploaded to the NCIC. But again, that's just based on my very limited understanding of this, so I wouldn't put much water into that, just trying to give you a little bit better picture of what exactly we're talking about. Had that been done properly and a police officer happened upon Hay's car, say it was abandoned, suspicious, possibly somebody called because this car had been parked in a certain place for a number of days, when the plate was ran, it would have thrown up an alert. Dispatch would have called them back and informed them that this car was a part of a missing persons investigation from Baltimore PD. And, of course, you can imagine how the snowball would start rolling from there. Now, on this report, it doesn't give us a lot of information. It only tells us that there was a couple of inquiries. And it appears, at least from what I've seen from Susan's research, that there was no follow-up after that. There's no other paperwork indicating that Officer O'Shea, when he made the inquiry and saw these hits, that he followed up on any of them. So we don't know a whole lot. All we know is that the plates were ran. We know they were in Baltimore County because there's an identifier number that shows up on the reports, and the identifier numbers for the NCIC follow a standard template across the country. If you look on the undisclosed websites in their document section and you pull this document up, you'll see with all of the inquiries, there's a number that starts with MD, which of course stands for Maryland. The next two digits are for the county, the next three digits are for the jurisdiction, and then I believe the next two digits are for a local unit. So based on that, someone who knows their numbering system could deduce very quickly which agency ran those plates. It's also my understanding that if the request is run through a dispatch center, there will also be a letter in one of the last two placeholders. So what does all this mean? Well, it can mean a number of things. It could be nothing, and it could be everything. It could be that, indeed, two different Baltimore County police officers came across Hayes' car on February 4th, one in the middle of the night and one later the next morning. We do know that the inquiry was made by two separate officers on the same day several hours apart. If the Baltimore County shifts work like most police agency shifts work, it would be two different shifts. It seems as though, or is indicated as such, that Detective O'Shea didn't input the plates separately into the NCIC system, only the missing persons report. From what I understand. The plate number was put into the report into the system, but just with the missing persons report, not separately. I don't know at this point if that makes a difference for the searches. It's possible that by making this mistake, this would result in if a police officer ran the plates through the NCIC system, they wouldn't get any hits back. So it's possible an officer came across Hayes' car and ran the plates, nothing came back, and he left. Possibly he let the officer who know who relieved him in the morning to go back and check and see if the car is still there. He also ran the plates in no hit. Now the difficult part here is I don't know how things work in Baltimore. I only know how they work in my county and my jurisdiction and my state. So again, fair warning, none of what I have experienced here and what I have inquired about from the local county and state officers here could be relevant in Maryland. I spoke with a state police detective and a county detective in the last couple of days regarding this issue to kind of see what they thought about it. And what they told me, if this scenario was correct, typically, in their jurisdictions, them running that plate and checking that car would have been the result of a complaint. Somebody calling in and complaining about it. If that's the case, that complaint should still be out there somewhere. It would generate a report. And it doesn't seem, at least not that we've found so far, and hopefully, and I'm sure, Susan Simpson is still digging deeper and deeper into this. So far, from my understanding, no one has found a report attached to those inquiries. The officers that I spoke with said that it is unlikely that they would just randomly stop and check a car that they maybe have noticed was parked in the same place for a couple of days. Not totally out of the question, just unlikely, and that's based on the volume of calls that they have. The quote that I had from the county detective was that we're not out looking for trouble. We've got enough trouble to take care of already. But they said there's another scenario where they may stop and check the plates, and that's if there's something suspicious about the car. And that could be a various number of things, something that they would notice by driving by and seeing a car that made it look odd to them or was worrisome. But then they also said in our jurisdiction, if they were to stop and do that and the car was still there, they would attempt to make contact with the owner. But again, that's just our jurisdiction here. Now, the other possibility is that someone was driving the car and the police pulled them over and ran their plates. But again, that would generate a stop report, possibly a ticket. And again, there was two of them. Then the third option is if the county put out a BOL for Hay's car, which stands for be on the lookout, they would get an alert from dispatch letting them know to be on the lookout. And they would give the description of Hay. They would give the description and plate numbers of the car. All three officers that I spoke with said a lot of times when that happens, they will do a quick search on their in-car computers through the NCIC system or through LEAN to get more information. Information being what is the home address, if there's any other notes in the NCIC system, just any other information that might help them out in trying to locate this vehicle. So that's another possibility, is that a BOL was just put out, which resulted in the officer at night punching that into his computer, trying to get some more information. And then after shift change, the memo's up that they have this BOL. Officer comes on shift in the morning, runs an inquiry on his car to do the same thing. So what does all this mean? It means that we either have information that would indicate that there was some severe corruption here, that are suspicions of the police possibly moving the car or someone moving the car prior to the police finding it on February 28th, or it could mean nothing at all. Personally, I'd like to commend Susan Simpson and the Undisclosed team for even finding this information. I have to admit, I was just in awe when I was hearing it. Now, like I said, it could be a huge piece of information or it could be nothing, but nonetheless, the depths in which Susan Simpson and Rabia Shadri and Colin Miller are going to try to get to the bottom of this case is unbelievable. And it's also worth noting that Susan and Rabia on the addendum, neither of them made jumps or leaps and claimed that they know exactly what happened here. They merely presented the information and some possible outcomes. So for now, that's all I really know about the situation with the NCIC hits and the report that was requested by Officer O'Shea on February 24th. But I don't think we're down to the bottom of this. I really think we need to chase this all the way down the rabbit hole and see where it leads. We may not find an answer, but it's certainly worth the look. So I've made arrangements for next week for one of my co-hosts on the Off-Duty podcast, who also happens to be a full-time county police, fire, and EMS dispatcher, to sit in on the show and talk to us for a few minutes and try to shed a little more light on this. He has a far better understanding of how this system works than I do. In fact, a lot of the information about the actual system and how it works came from Ryan already so next week expect at least a short interview with dispatcher Ryan Luker on episode 9 of the serial dynasty trying to shed a little bit more light on this situation now another point of interest from both episode 5 as well as the episode 5 addendum from undisclosed was the collar that was missing from the ignition on Hayes car now if my understanding is correct the collar missing was just something that was noticed by the undisclosed team when researching the case it wasn't something that the police were looking into. It was noticed just in the background of a photo that was intended to be just taken of the broken turn signal or wiper lever or whatever we came up with on that. There was nothing really in the police report about it. Now, the Undisclosed team has mentioned that the collar being missing is certainly an indication of a car being hot-wired or attempted to be hot-wired. I've thought quite a bit about this. And since the police didn't really investigate this, we don't really know exactly what was going on in the car. But a little background on hot wiring, and no, I've never hot wired a car, but I've worked on the wiring of a car, and I understand how it works and how you would hot wire one. There's a clump of wires that goes up your steering column into your ignition. One of those wires has constant power to it. There are a series of other wires involved in the ignition. When you turn your key, it's actually a switch, that would connect the wire that already has power in it to the wire that activates the starter. The starter turns over and think about when you start your car you turn that key all the way forward, your starter starts going, when the car starts the key goes back a little bit and that's moving it back to make contact with the wire that keeps the car running. So in order to hotwire a car you have to strip that wire that already has power to it and also strip the other two wires the one that activates the starter and then the one that keeps the car running if my understanding of electronics in a car is correct you would touch that wire with power in it to the starter wire once it starts you'd move it over to the one that keeps the car running twist it onto that one and you're good to go and you're able to drive Now I'm pointing this out merely to draw attention to the fact that had the car been hot-wired and it wasn't noted in the police investigation then they either missed or ignored more than just that collar missing. The perpetrator would have had to have had access to the wires, they would be stripped, they would be pulled off, it would be very obvious that the car had indeed been hot-wired. So my first thought was, it's possible that collar just broke off or was gone. But then after listening to the Episode 5 addendum, Colm said something that got my attention. He said a theory could be that it's possible that Hay interrupted someone attempting to hotwire her car, at which point the struggle ensued and she was tragically murdered. As I thought more and more about this, it occurred to me that this actually makes sense. One of the biggest problems that we have with this case is trying to figure out how the killer intercepted Hay. What caused her to stop? What caused her to get out of her car? What caused her to let someone into her car? We don't know exactly what happened, but let's just think for a moment that maybe Colin's right on this. Maybe this theory is exactly what happened. Imagine in your mind that Hay stops somewhere. She gets out of her car. Maybe she goes into a gas station. Maybe she goes into a friend's house or a store, wherever she was. She comes back out and someone is in the process of hot wiring her car. She wasn't in there very long. They had just gotten the ignition collar off when she comes out. Of course, she starts yelling at the person, what are you doing in my car? They attack her. They knock her out, possibly kill her there on the spot. Now they wouldn't need to hotwire the car because Hay had the keys. That would explain why the collar was off, but the wires weren't stripped. I want to point out that it's still concerning to me that the police didn't note the fact that the collar was missing. Susan made clear in episode 5 that through reading the reports, there was just several things that were left out that were not addressed, that were unclear, that were inconsistent. So we know the processing and reporting of what happened in that car was not done well. But still, that's certainly one of the things that most certainly should have been noted is whether the vehicle had been tampered with. So going back to our scenario, Hay interrupts someone starting to hotwire her car, an argument ensues, she's knocked out, she's murdered, now the killer has her keys. They don't need to continue with the hot wiring and the story goes on from there. Now moving on before we close the show, I want to read a listener email. This email is from Jacqueline Harris from Weston Hills, Spalding, England. Jacqueline says, Hi Bob. Thanks for the great podcast. I am listening to and reading all things to do with the case avidly. I have a question regarding curfew and the time when learner drivers are allowed on the roads. In the undisclosed episode, 28 days, Krista talks about her 18th birthday party and how the party finished at 11 p.m. so that everyone on provisionals could get home by 12. So I was thinking about this and wondering what kind of driver's license Jay, Adnan, and Hay had. Do you know? Only if it turns out that Hay's body was buried around 12 p.m. to 1.30 a.m. over the 13th, 14th January and not at 7 p.m. like Jay initially stated, then would Jay slash Adnan really be comfortable driving around at that time of night? Not that I am implying that they would never do it, because it would be breaking the law, if that is what happened then. If that is what happened then clearly that would be the least of their worries. But I mean in terms of drawing the least bit of notice slash attention slash suspicion to themselves, it would seem to me that if they were going to bury a body, then they would want to have it completed well before the driving curfew. Do you see what I mean? I think you sort of alluded to it when you were talking to Adnan's friend Omar. You asked if Adnan would have had a curfew. Of course, if it was a third party bearing the body, and they were older-slash-not-on provisionals, then it wouldn't make any difference what time they were out and about driving. The reason I asked what license Hay was on is that someone was driving her car, and I wonder if, say, the police checked the license plate for her car whilst they were following it, would they know that it was registered to a person on a provisional license? Or how would they tell? Is there a special provisionals plate or sticker displayed on the car so that you can tell? What are the consequences for being caught driving after the provisional curfew? Is the curfew generally adhered to, or is it taken lightly? Either by young drivers, slash their peers, slash adults. Would police, as a matter of course, stop young people to check their license if they saw them driving around after curfew and suspected they were on provisionals? We don't have this system in the UK, so I really don't have any cultural reference points for it. Of course, if Jay, slash Adnan, and Hay all had full driver's license, then this is all irrelevant. I feel so sad for Adnan and I'm convinced of his innocence and I am completely mindful that the correct person must be brought to justice for this awful crime and bring justice for poor, poor Hay. Thanks and keep up the good work. With very best wishes, Jackie. Thanks, Jackie, for that email. And again, your question led me down a different train of thought. First of all, I don't necessarily have the answers to your questions. A lot of states in the United States are fairly consistent on this but it does differ from state to state. And I tried to do a little bit of research to find out the ages, and I wasn't able to find any information regarding how old you had to be for your provisional license to turn into a full driver's license in 1999. I do have some contacts that I can get a hold of that were in Baltimore during that time that should be able to get me an answer, but I just didn't have time today before recording this. So I'll let you know how things work here in Michigan, and if that's not the way it works in Maryland, I will shoot you an email back and I'll address it in next week's episode. In Michigan, you can get your driver's license at age 16, and I know that's true as well in some of our bordering states, but you have a provisional driver's license until you turn 18, so for the first two years that you're driving. So if that was the case in Baltimore in 1999, Anon and Hay would both have provisional driver's license and would be subject to the curfew. Jay, however, was 19 at the time and would not have had a provisional driver's license. Now I can also tell you there's nothing tied to the car there's no sticker or anything like that for provisional drivers in the state of Michigan. The only way that a police officer would know would be if they pulled you over and they ran your driver's license. That's when it would come up that you were on a provisional driver's license. I don't know exactly what the penalty is for that. Uh it is minor in the sense that it's not like jail time or anything like that. I believe it's a ticket, something along those lines. So in short, I don't necessarily think that the young drivers driving Hays' car around would be necessarily drawing attention to themselves. Not like driving around with a headlight out or a broken taillight or something like that. But in reading your email, it got me thinking about the question that I asked Omar. Now, I don't know how relevant it is that they had possibly a provisional driver's license as far as the police being alerted that they were out driving at that time. But how I do think that it's relevant is Adnan's parents were very strict. Remember, he was not allowed to date. He was not allowed to be with a woman. He was drug out of his homecoming dance. They didn't put up with any kind of nonsense. Now, of course, you got the point of what I was asking Omar, which is to find out if Adnan would have been home by 10.30, 11 o'clock, or whatever time it may be, well before Hayes' body was driven out to Lincoln Park and buried, based on the lividity evidence. But now throw this into the mix. If he was on a provisional license, and he wasn't to be driving after 11 p.m. or midnight or whatever time that is, I have serious doubts that his parents would allow him to be out driving at that time. The fact that he had such strict parents just further concretes my theory that he was back at his home by 10.30 at night on January thirteenth, nineteen 1999, and it was nowhere near Leakin Park when Hayes' body was buried. Now, like much of this case, of course, this is speculation, but the best we can do right now is speculate and theorize based on the evidence that we have, both circumstantial and physical. So for me, this is just one more note in the stack of notes that provide Anand with his alibi for the entire day. Now, for all of you other listeners out there, I want to thank you for all the emails and the tweets that you've sent over the last week. As I've mentioned before, I want you to know that I do read all of them. I try to respond to some of them when I can. They're coming in now at a rate that is much higher than I can possibly keep up with responding to all of them while still working and having family time. So please understand that just because you might not get an email back from me doesn't mean that I didn't read your email. And I want to apologize for not getting to more emails in this episode. Uh, It becomes very difficult to read a lot of emails in the segments when we have an interview because it eats up a large portion of the show. But please understand that your emails are important to me. They're the thing that is driving this movement forward. Every day we're getting closer to the truth. And a large part of how and why we're getting closer to the truth is because of all of your minds out there working and reeling around this, looking at it from different points of view, from different angles, from different perspectives, putting those thoughts on paper, collecting them all in one central resource, and then working through them together. And I believe that if we keep doing this, We will find out who killed Heyman Lee. Next week's episode of the Serial Dynasty will be all listener emails. So please be sure to get your emails in to theories at SerialDynasty.com. Also appearing on next week's episode from the Off-Duty podcast, dispatcher Ryan Luker. And ladies and gentlemen, let's keep this movement going. Keep sending me those emails send me your tweets at serial dynasty and remember the most important thing that we can do to keep driving this movement forward is to gain more and more soldiers in this army so please continue to tell your friends tweet about serial dynasty post it on facebook take just a moment and go on to itunes and review the show that moves us up the ranks in itunes and causes more people to notice the show the Serial Dynasty Army is getting bigger and stronger by the day. Funding for the Serial Dynasty comes from Audible. Audible is giving a free audiobook to any Serial Dynasty listener. To receive your free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com slash Serial Dynasty. And a large portion of our funding for this movement comes from you listeners. If you'd like to donate to the show to help move this thing forward, just go to SerialDynasty.com and click the donate button. I want to give a special thanks to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music who created all of the music for our show. And One more time, I want to wish all you gentlemen out there Happy Father's Day, and until next week, this has been The Serial Dynasty.